Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, missionary to Zimbabwe, Africa, sent out of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. My guest today is Brother Matt Stallman. I've looked forward to talking with Brother Stallman about some of the resources he's been developing in the realm of missionary preparedness and global missions awareness. But in this first segment, Brother Stallman relates the background out of which these resources have been birthed, both from his personal experience and from 20 years of missions thinking and observation. Brother Stallman's transparency about his family's experience in foreign missions deployment afforded us an opportunity to address some territory that I've not previously addressed on this podcast. I think it was both interesting and helpful. This is the first of a two-part interview on Beyond Borders and Impact Geography with Brother Matthew Stallman. Now for the conversation. Brother Stallman, you've been seriously engaged in Great Commission ministry for quite a long time now, and I've been looking forward to chatting with you about some of the resources that you have developed, both in the realm of preparing missionaries for foreign mission service, as well as making another generation more aware of the need for the gospel around the world. So um, if, if you would, take us back to your deployment to Africa, to the country of Malawi. How did God put that on your heart? And what, uh, what was your experience in moving from um, the Midwest to <laughs> Sub-Sahara Africa? Yeah, Brother Lee, thank you for having us on here. And I appreciate that time and the opportunity to share. Uh, God has put mission on my heart for over 20 years now. And, and we have uh, pretty much everything we've done have, has been involved in missions in some way. But that wasn't like that in the beginning. I Honestly, at 17, 18, 19 years old, I was involved in local church ministry and had never had a single thought of doing any kind of missionary work. I was probably one of those kids that was maybe a little bit backward, raised in a in a in a in a fairly conservative home, fairly sheltered, and uh bus ministry to me was cutting edge. I mean, to go outside of my own community <laughs> and to knock on doors and invite somebody to church, that was a thrill of a lifetime because I didn't do that as a young person or as a teenager. And so when I had really gotten right with the Lord, that that was for me i thought this is my life calling to go into these neighborhoods to to invite people to come to church to bring a bus by and pick them up and so at 18 years old that that was it for me that was my life vision i had never dreamed of leaving the city that i was in i i didn't even know about missions trips and um deputation didn't know about any of that stuff and so for about a four-year period there from 18 to 22 uh our life was bus ministry, just bringing people to Christ, trying to make disciples, being faithful in our local church. And um, through that bus ministry, I, I kind of invited a man that I'd heard speak before, and I invited him to our church to speak on the bus ministry because we were trying to recruit workers. We need drivers. You know, back in the, in those days, the bus ministry was still uh, up and going and, and growing, and, and we always needed help. And so he said, well, I'll come and do this bus conference, but it'll be my last one. I'm retiring out of bus ministry. And I didn't process what that meant. I just kind of <laughs> said, man, Lord, you know, I, I really want him to come. And so when he came, he starts off in that first night, he didn't mention the bus ministry. He talked about Africa. 
and it was good. I mean, it was a blessing, but I thought, well, okay, he'll, he'll settle in, you know, tomorrow night a little bit. And, uh, but he didn't settle in. He stayed on Africa and he spent <laughs> that there. And it was a, a Sunday through Friday bus workers meeting. And he preached every night on the need of Africa. And, uh, so, I mean, needless to say, we didn't, we didn't come up with any bus workers, but we did have a folks in the church surrender the mission field. <laughs> My wife and I were, were some of them. That last night of that meeting, I, it was so heavy on my heart to go to Africa and to begin working in Africa. I mean, it was just, it, it, it was unmistakable what God was doing in my heart, how he orchestrated it. And I remember just sitting after church that night, just with my wife, just weeping and just asking God, Lord, is this what you want? We just, we had one little baby. We had another baby on the way. And do you want us to leave all of this, to leave this ministry and go to Africa? And, and the Lord's answer was clear. I began to, pray with our pastor and consult with him. And I think that conference was in September of 99. And by October of 99, my wife and I were on deputation to head to Malawi. And and so wow. that is kind of how that was birthed in our heart. It just happened. It happened so suddenly and surprisingly to us. Uh, and, and, you know, even though we don't live in Africa now, I've never got Africa out of my heart. Uh, it's just something that God did in that, that conference that week. So it was a blessing. Well, I can certainly relate to Africa getting in one's heart and not going away, brother. Um, this was uh, this must have been a hugely exciting thing, not only for you but for your church family, because um, you, you, your family, I guess, this was something that was new for for your church. So, how did they respond well, when when you presented yourself for for this kind of ministry? So, so the church was new. It had grown up fairly quickly. We supported missionaries. We talked about missions, but had never had the thought of sending from within our own own body. Uh, so it it was exciting, yet yet I think there was some uh, kind of a nervous you know apprehension about how how do we do this? And of course, hindsight now, there's a lot of things we did not know. But sure. but it was exciting. Our our church started getting behind us, and uh, of course we had served there faithfully. I, I they were our friends, you know, the people that that we thought we'd spend a lifetime with. And as they begin to prepare to send us, they started to raise money within the church. And when we actually started the deputation process, we uh, by I guess most standards we cheated the process because our church sent us with fifteen hundred dollars a month support. And so we were able to really, back in the 90s, we started deputation, you know, at, at 50% of our support already coming in there uh, when we went to our first meeting. And so that that sped everything up. So it just accelerated. And again, our pastor had not sent a missionary, not trained a missionary. And so I just remember as we, we announced to the church that night, I'd worked for the church for several years, and we announced on that Sunday night, you know, hey, the Stallman's family is headed to Malawi, Africa. And after church that night, pastor gave me my, my paycheck for the week. And that, that was it. That was my paycheck. That was, uh, <laughs> th- so that was the deputation process for, we didn't have any meetings scheduled. We didn't have any, any anywhere to go. Uh, but we, we did in about nine months, we went through deputation. We raised the remainder of the funds that we needed, um, got the visa applications, got everything that we needed for Africa. And so from October of 99 to June of, of 2000, uh, we were in Africa in full-time ministry. And so it was exciting time. It, sure, it was a whirlwind sure. for us. 
Well, I, I, I think that as a rule, we tend to look at um, preparation and deployment in terms of fundraising <laughs> and yes. let's get the deputation knocked out. Let's get the, uh, also there are the considerations for visas and, and permits for entry, how you'll stay in the country. But um, as your family soon found out, uh, there's quite a learning curve when you go to w- live in the third world, and uh, there are uh, there 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 is just a, a tremendous amount to learn in order to uh, just make it work on a in a in any foreign co- sure. uh, country because of the because of the challenge of of culture. So, what was what was what were the living conditions like for you in Malawi, and what was it? How did your how did your family adjust to that new field? Because that's a Malawi. You talk about a contrast from Iowa to Malawi. Yes, sir. That's uh, that's well, that's quite a move. So what we were first taken with was the people. We love the people. And sure. uh, again, I I know everybody's been on a missions trip, or if you're a missionary listening, you think, well, you know, people can be manipulated. Everybody can be manipulative, but we loved the people from the very beginning, and so we enjoyed that. The culture was kind of, um, it was different, it was foreign, but we, but we began to make adjustments. The uh, living conditions, when we started, we did have a missionary there on the ground in Malawi, and he actually rented our first home for us. We had moved so quickly, and, and he did a great job of, of making sure that it had, you know, the things that we would need. It had running water, it had electricity, had a little bit of security and, and some fencing, and so that wasn't too too difficult for us. So those first few months, the honeymoon months were so exciting because uh, we didn't have a vehicle. Um, we didn't have anything, brother. And we just, when we shipped a container, it got lost. I didn't see it until we were about ready to leave Africa. So we, oh, wow. we, we didn't have anything, you know, two pairs of pants and, you know, a couple of dishes, but it was so exciting because we were just on foot from village to village, preaching the gospel and looking for, for the ground that was really um, able to, to, to take the seed that we were sowing. And it was just the first few months or so, God began to open those doors in some of the local villages. And the man, the more I preached, the more people came. And, and there was some genuine desire to know Christ and to be discipled. And of course, you have to weed through as you begin to work in all of those places. But but there was some genuine stuff going on there. And in fact, I met two men in those first few months who are still today pastoring the two churches in those villages. And this has been tw- 21 years later. Those yeah. two men are doctrinally sound. And, and one of them was already saved. One of them I led to the Lord. But but those relationships developed with those people in the villages were just outstanding. But as that's taking place... What's beginning to go on on the peripheral is, is the tropical diseases and the sickness and the bacterial infections and just the things that it kind of came out of nowhere for us. Those are the things that we did not see. And it was not but a few weeks or months into our ministry there that we began to deal with malaria. First with our two children, Caleb was about three months old. Nathan was a year and a half old. Uh, they came down with malaria first, and, and as we're treating them for malaria, they're starting to recover. Then my wife comes down with it, and that starts a cycle for us where it was every day someone is sick. 
so mm-hmm. that the joy of the ministry was kind of being overtaken by okay who's going to who's going down next and are we going to be able to perform the ministry that we have because we're taking care of children and, and taking care of each other at this point and as we're dealing with a malaria that's that's the first thing but then the second thing that begin to take place is we begin to deal with some of the criminal element and, and security risk that that you know, honestly, a country boy from the Midwest, we had never locked our doors. We had, I mean, we had <laughs> never, I, no street smarts. And I, you know, I, there's just no way to build that in somebody until you've lived there. And so we were robbed. Uh, once we did get our car off the container, I remember I bought groceries one time. My wife was in the passenger seat. I was in the driver's seat. I think the kids were with another missionary family. We put the groceries in the back of the, it was an Isuzu trooper. We drive back to the house, get out of the trooper, reach for the groceries, and they're not there. I didn't yeah. even stop on the way home. How do you get robbed in a moving vehicle? And I still to this day don't even know how that happened. And it was <laughs> relentless. It was, wow. rel- you know, <laughs> it was relentless. And then the, the threats began to, move beyond just the um, groceries being stolen or, or hammers being taken and people began to break into the house. Windows were busted and, and locks were cut. Then you have this, the spiritual element of, of, of listening to the drums beat all night long and, and oh, confronting yeah. the witch doctors in the, in the villages and in the markets. And uh, you, you know, and, until you have been there, there, there's not words to really communicate the level of stress and anxiety and things that you begin to go through there. And so those first few months as they wound down and the honeymoon stage kind of ended, things begin to get pretty dark. Um, I mean, in serious medical risk, in serious security risk, and, and spiritually even just struggling to, to stay on top of, of what was happening. And, uh, by the end of our first year, not the first term, but by the end of the first year, we were just exhausted. We just felt like we couldn't go on any further. Well, brother, foreign foreign missions often attracts men. It attracts uh, families who who are hardy, who are determined, who are who are motivated. Um, but of course, uh, an uh, underpreparedness. Uh, and lack of exposure to some of the challenges that you've described can certainly be a, a hindrance to effectiveness and longevity on the mission field. Um, and you were faced with the difficult, uh, the difficult decision of having to actually leave your field uh, just a year in. Is that right? Yes, sir. And and that's I still to this day maybe the most dis- difficult decision that we've ever made because. Not only did you want to be there and you love the people, but you've made a commitment. First of all, you feel like there's this commitment to the Lord. Lord, I said that I would do this, and it doesn't matter how bad it is. I, I said I would do it. And the second thing is the commitment to to your churches, your friends, your families, those who supported you. And it's a very difficult thing to come back home and face the people who have sent you, and in a sense, as a failure. Now, well, we could talk about this all day long. What was God doing behind the scenes? And, and there's some beautiful things that were happening that we did not know about for years, how God was going to use that. But in the moment, all sure. you have is this taste of failure. And sure. 
in, in fact, the truth is, I, as I, I meet missionaries along the way constantly with a similar story that lines up with the story, most of them, almost all of them, do not return to their home church, their sending church, because it's just this reminder week after week when you see people that those are the people that sent me and I couldn't cut it. And and you have to you have to process that. And and we're we're one of those. We spent about six months at our home church back in Iowa. Um before we before we left that church, not of anything that they did wrong or that we did wrong. It was just how do you move on past a missionary career? I was only twenty three years old when we returned. And so wow. here you are. You know, a lot of my peers were still in college or graduated from college. We had been to the mission field, been hurt and, and, and washed up in the ministry. And for the first time in my adult life was out of ministry now, not knowing what direction to take. And so it was about a five year journey for us where we had to make peace with the idea that God can send a person. He can orchestrate things. And he can bring them home to use them for another purpose. And and even maybe somebody listening right now is thinking, I don't know that I believe that. Well, it took me five years to process it because <sighs> there was maybe even some bitterness of why would the Lord send us to do a great work and then bring us home to do nothing. And uh, from 2001 to 2006, that was the process that we were working through. What is What is God doing and what is next for us? Brother Stallman, I really appreciate your transparency about this about this subject and your personal experience because of course this is not unique to your family. This is this is not something that uh that only you have experienced and, and been through. That this your experience is characteristic of quite a few um uh one time foreign missionaries. Sure. And uh, yep. it is something that we that we need to grapple with, and and because at least at least part of what figures in is as Americans we do look at the we have a very we we look at dollars and cents, and and that it's it's not it's not that that's not an issue. It's it it is an issue, and we do want to be as efficient as we can be. Uh, but efficiency is ultimately not the only uh, question. Uh, uh, right. The pleasure of God and uh, spiritual and moral character; these things are are most important to the Lord. And so, I do think that at the judgment seat of Christ, um, some excursions into foreign missions that are perceived um, on on the on the front end in the short term as being great failures uh, will not come out that way ultimately when the Lord yes, uh, gives judgment about these matters. Yeah, and, and I, I seen it not only in our life there as we, we returned home, and we actually had, the, the, in my class that I went to school, at a Christian school, there were three of us who ended up in, in missionary service. Um, one family didn't finish deputation. The other family did finish a, a term in Africa, and we had finished the year. And so... Out of the, the three families there that, that went, n- none of us would have what you would call a, a missionary career or a, a, uh, a, a lo- with any longevity to it. And now as I travel, this conversation comes up almost, almost every church I go to, especially when it's a new church for us. How did we get where we are? What happened on the mission field? And almost 
always, if, if a church is a decent number, there'll be one or two families in the church who will come up and say, yeah, us too. Wow. We tried. And yeah. there are literally thousands of families who have done missions and for some reason have come off the mission field and they're in that that lost place of, okay, I failed at that. That did not work. That's what I drew. My dream did not happen. And I think our churches have failed to, to see the value in that family, that somebody who has already had the boldness to go, they were, I mean, it's such a risk. Oh yeah. It's such a risk to even go. They they've already went. They've learned languages. They understand foreign culture, but yet something hindered them. So I, I have a great burden to see those thousands of people redeployed into new missionary endeavors, maybe a different ah. field. You know, I I didn't even know if I were to say that malaria was our primary cause of coming home, and I and I believe that's true. I didn't even know that there are places in Africa that did not have malaria. Yeah. And so it, it could have been a, a simple redeployment process for my family instead of uh, a retrip, a trip home as a failure. But, but we just were lacking that understanding. And, and so I believe that God has a great plan for others in our situation. Brother, this is uh, the, the the nature of the conversation uh, here is is something that I didn't precisely anticipate, but this is so helpful because, um, as you say, this is an experience that many many have had. The reality is that diseases take place, uh, accidents happen, wars break out, permits are canceled, and uh, you know part 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 of this. This is this is maybe a rabbit trail we don't want to pursue, but we describe uh, our a calling to a foreign field, and it seems so locational, and uh, we express yeah. it with such confidence. And part of the part of the reason for expressing it in those ways is because of economic factors, because churches want to support people that have confidence that they're supposed to go to a, to a particular sure. place. But the reality is the need of the gospel, uh, that's something that's constant. The Great Commission is something that con- that's constant. But um, the timing and location of our deployment is something that changes. And uh, I think that we need to be prepared to acknowledge that um, sometimes there are changes in our deployment. It doesn't mean that we're washed up, doesn't mean that God can't use us, doesn't mean that uh, it's ultimate failure. Uh, it just means maybe different time, different place. The the reason your story, the reason 20, 20 years plus later that you can be on a podcast having this conversation with this kind of retrospect is that you didn't lose your heart for the Lord. You didn't lose your heart for the cause. You've kept your focus on the Great Commission. Right. And and the 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 work is bigger than than a one year uh, uh, pursuit in foreign missions, and uh, you didn't quit, <laughs> which is why yes, we can sir. have this conversation. Yeah, and I, and I, I man, I think that's important is just to drive home to people. And a lot of missionary work is trial and error, and and it is it is examining the ground. Is the ground you know ready for the seed that's going to be sown? And and if we study. And I know this is complex, but if we if we just took the life of the Apostle Paul and studied his journeys, what we're going to find is that missions 
is actually very broad in the capabilities of how that we can perform it, because it's essentially the proclamation of the gospel to those who need to hear. Now, we do, we do, I guess, for utility's sake, we package it in a certain in a certain box so that people understand what we're doing and how we're doing it. Uh, but I never, I never dreamed of transitioning or or how to. It, get back into missions. And so it was actually 2006 uh, at a missions conference, a pastor called me. He said, you have to come. And I, I said, man, I've, I've been out of missions for four or five years. I was I was teaching Sunday school. We were serving the Lord. We we're knocking on doors, picking up bus kids again. That's what I knew. And uh, so I did go to this missions conference. And boy, it really was another life-changing moment for us because as I began to talk to the, one of the men who was preaching at the conference, he said to me, I, he was probably 60 years old. I was 26, 28. He said to me, he said, didn't anybody ever tell you about all of that stuff before you went? I said, <laughs> uh, no, they just gave me money. <laughs> that was the, the process. I preached, they gave me money. And he said, how could, how could this happen? How could you have gotten to Malawi and didn't know anything about malaria and didn't know anything about the security stuff, didn't know about, you know, driving vehicles? And uh, he was just kind of appalled that nobody had told me. And in, in one of his sermons that week, he said something like this. He said, somebody needs to tell these young people before they get over there what it's going to be like. And man, wow. it resonated with me. I, yeah. I just couldn't shake that. Um, and going back in, into my story, uh, I know there had to have been veteran missionaries and veteran pastors who looked at me and shook their head and said, this kid does not know what he's getting into. I know they thought that, but none of them pulled me to the side and said, not yet. None of them. And so I don't know, it's a strange calling. Is that a calling? Is that a strange calling to, to say that my job sometimes <laughs> is to look at young missionaries and say, you don't know what you're doing? Uh, you know, step, take a step back a little bit. Um, yeah. but, but, it's, but I feel, though, that I would have greatly benefited from some of that myself. And uh, that missionary at that conference in 2006, he brought purpose back to my family's ministry life because I thought, well, maybe there's somehow God could use this for good. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that. But but before we segue into Beyond Borders and some of the, the training that you uh, have, have been providing over the years to try to head some of this stuff off, um, you, I heard you make an interesting observation about Paul's missionary career and the... Uh, cultural challenges that he faced as compared to some of the difficulties associated with modern cross-cultural ministry. Um, would you touch on that for just a moment? Because it's, a, it's, a, it's an observation that I think is, is actually quite interesting, and, and uh, it, it, should, it should inform us. We, the, the, there, there is more preparation, perhaps, for us to engage in on the front end than there was for uh, for an apostle Paul, or even for some um, some personalities like William Carey or Hudson Taylor or other pioneering missionaries at the beginning of the modern missions movement. Okay, yeah. So it, as I've been studying this just recently and, and just really looking at the world map, and not just the map geographically, 
but looking at the world and the system that was taking place in the early New Testament. And so you have, during Paul's time, during the time of the Lord, you have the Pax Romana, and you have you know the, the Roman peace that spreads across the, the world. You have the common language. And what you see in the Apostle Paul's ministry is not that it was not dangerous. I mean, he gives his list in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11 of all of the dangers that he faced. But what you do see is that the way of living primarily from all of, of the, the Levant area of the Middle East up into Turkey, into Greece, and even over into Rome, that a lifestyle was fairly common. So there would be uh, areas where people bathed. There would be some public toilets. There would be places where food was served. Uh, but, but the mode of transportation by horse or by foot, or by wagon, it was fairly static. And in saying that, I'm not saying there's not cultural differences or even languages that were encountered, but Paul was accustomed to washing his clothes by hands or by by taking a fish that, that was alive and, and filleting that fish and preparing it over a fire. The common way of life was somewhat static. And then you take that even forward 1,800 years into the early pioneer missionaries of Britain, like Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor washed his clothes by hands. He cooked his meals over an open fire. He he slept on a thin feather mattress. Uh, if they were going to be hot, then the house was hot. If it was cold outside, the house was cold. There, there are things about the way the sanitation worked. There are outhouses, and there was a lot of similarities between England and China. Now, again, drastically different culture, drastically different language, but I'm just talking the way of life. Now, bring that forward into the early days of the United States. Here we have Jim Elliott, uh, Jim Elliott and some of his missionary friends in the 1950s. And I've read where Jim Elliott, after school on a Friday, would hop on a train and he would just go into the woods with a 22 and a fishing pole and not come back till Monday morning when school started again <laughs> at 12 years old. <laughs> and so they they were raised my, my mom is my mom is 65 years old she was raised with no electric and plumbing at 65 years old and the church that I'm in in southern Missouri right now if I were to say how many of you old timers here grew up without plumbing and electricity probably 30 hands would go up there <laughs> has never been a generation like the generation that our young people are in today yeah. And, and I got to throw myself under the bus here a little bit. I I, I claim I'm not a millennial. I'm 45. So I, I bypassed that a little bit. But still, I, I did not know what it was like to grow up without modern conveniences. We had color television. We had air conditioning. We, we had developed a lifestyle to where if we want to eat it, we eat it. If we don't want to eat it, we don't eat it. We've been blessed. And that has created... I think the first generation that is so drastically different from at least the third world, but really two thirds of the world's population, yes, that we can't even get to the point of cultural adaptation because we cannot adapt a way of life. And it's taking a, a huge toll on our missionary force. Even though the Lord used your situation in the long run, um, the the year that you spent 
the necessity because of health reasons and other considerations of coming off the mission field uh, prematurely in terms of your original purpose and and the fact that that's not an uncommon thing. Now, we recognize that the Lord um, can use that and the Lord has used that. But of course, that that isn't the ideal. That that's not the that's not the goal. We want to see we we want to see men and families deployed to foreign fields and to remain there long term and and to and to have lengthy fruitful ministries uh, in the fields that they that they've been deployed to. And uh, when that does not happen, uh, unfortunately, as you experienced and other men have experienced, it seems like the missionary bears uh, the brunt of the blame, if you would, for that perceived failure. Uh, But we've evidently got uh, some systematic weaknesses built in to the manner in which we're taking up this missionary enterprise and deploying men. And even as you've pointed out, nobody, nobody told you, nobody even brought it to your attention. Um, You were actually going into a scenario for which you had very little preparation. And um, surely the church, which is sending men uh, not just, and I'm speaking of the, the the larger church, the the you know the, the church of the Lord sure. Jesus Christ that is sending men forth. We've got to own the responsibility not only for paying for passage, uh, but also for seeing that men, as much as we are able, for seeing that they are prepared for dealing with the living conditions as well as the spiritual pressure. Um, and it seems like there should be more done on the front end to prepare men for the difficulties and the challenges and the rigors of foreign mission service. And of course, that's not a cookie cutter because uh, there are, there are certain fields that have difficulties that other fields don't have. Uh, But we need to acknowledge those on, surely we could reduce uh, the number of missionary families who are needing to come back because of these factors that you've described, like tropical illness and security considerations and so forth. So what do you feel like can be done and should be done on the front end to see that men and women are better prepared for the, for the living conditions and the spiritual pressures and uh, the practical challenges of living in the third world? Well, you know, that's, that's a great question. And boy, I guess we could write volumes of books trying to, trying to isolate these specifics. But first of all, we got to know that the local church is, it's a missionary it's a missionary body in in its very essence that's what it is and so what happens is we relegate missions to a specific person so we know that we have about twelve thousand independent baptist churches in the united states and we could probably scrounge up about five thousand missionaries out of those twelve thousand churches and that's pretty broad because we're calling some people missionaries that that most of us probably wouldn't call missionaries. But that means that less than half the churches in the United States never produce a missionary. Uh, so they, they uh, I'm sorry, there'd be more than half the churches in the United States never produce a missionary. <laughs> right. And if you begin to think about that, you have some churches who have sent dozens or, or hundreds of missionaries. So yes. really what it comes down to this is my best guess. 90% of churches in America have never sent a foreign missionary. 
So week after week, we go to church and we talk about how great the gospel is. I mean, it's the greatest thing that we could ever talk about or communicate, but yet we're not doing anything to fulfill the Great Commission. That's another subject. I don't think that most churches believe it can be fulfilled, so therefore why even make the effort? So if we come back to the local church and we say, okay, if the local church by in its very essence is a missionary organization, we contain the hope for the entire world, the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we should be proactive in what we're doing with our our uh, human force here. I mean, we have so much uh, manpower that we could harness to take the gospel into the world. But what we've done, we relegate it to a stranger who comes by and they tell us a little bit about missions. We give them $50, but we've not taken it personally. So I don't think we can just say, we'll fix this issue if we could implement these three things. I think it's going to take local churches who say, we are going to be responsible for the Great Commission, and so we're going to start. And so how would that start? It would start, number one, in the home. So it would start with families saying, you know what? God has entrusted us with these children. We're stewards of these children, but they're not ours. They were born to sin. Now, you could send them to the workforce and your community, or we could send them across the world. It makes no difference. <laughs> we must be preparing them. And now I have four children, and I keep talking like this, and everybody said, well, you know, your children are young. It's easy for you to say, well, now my children are older, and, and uh, they're starting to deploy. One of them left this morning on a trip, and uh, one of them's burdened for North Africa, and they, they keep coming back to one of them's burdened for the Middle East. They keep coming back with all these burdens and visions, and I think, oh, no, you know, what have we done? <laughs> because Praise the Lord we're bound to send them. We don't have an option. So I believe that if we embrace this early on in our homes, we can start mitigating a lot of these issues by just doing simple things like, hey, we've got something exciting for you tonight. This is called Thai food. And here's the, <laughs> here's the uh, lady from Thailand who's going to make it for us. Here's her name. <laughs> Here's her home. And, and, but if you wait, brother, if you wait till a kid is 21 years old and he gets a burden and he wants to go do something, but he can't eat anything but chicken nuggets from McDonald's, <laughs> it's almost too late. Yeah, very that's so hard true. to fix these guys. That's and so, so true. if our churches looked at our homes and said, What are you going to give us? What are you going to give us? What kind of young people are you going to give us to send? What can they do? Are they physically fit? You know, the Mormons enforce a body mass index to be a Mormon missionary. You have to have, to have a certain body mass index. <laughs> wow. I mean, I come on. What, who, is, <laughs> who is telling our young people to get off sugar and get off caffeine and to start losing weight and to learn how to, to, to be able to address some of the rigors of missions? Who's telling our young people, look, get in the in, into that map and study geography and then get online and look at, at cultures and customs and develop yourself to be useful instead of developing yourself to just take up another seat. And so what we've done, we create a user-friendly church 
that everyone goes to get fed, but no one wants to go feed others. And this is a wholesale issue for our churches. Now, when we talk about the missionary force, you and I are well acquainted with these people. They're great people. They love the Lord. There are too few of them. We need to not double. We need to triple, quadruple our numbers of missionaries on the mission field. One third of the world has never even heard the name of Jesus. And we live in the day where it's easier than it's ever been as far as our travel, our technology, our capabilities with satellite, radio, and internet. And so let's start in our homes with our two, three, four, five-year-olds. Let's help them embrace the mission God has for them. All we're concerned about is that they don't get into sin and they make money. That's the only two things we care. <laughs> and, it, and honestly, here's what I've noticed, and, and Brother Lee, you may disagree with me, but radical missionaries never want for young men to serve with them. Yeah. These guys who are out there cutting edge, radical guys, they've got young men lined up. Sure. Because here's why. The same reason they volunteer for the military service. They don't have vision. They lack passion and purpose. And when a missionary comes through, you know, when Hudson Taylor came through and he preached for D.L. Moody, D.L. Moody took up an offering for him. This is in the 1860s, $8,000 cash. That's an incredible offering. Hudson Taylor laid it back on the table. He said, I won't take the offering unless you send me men. And so they scrounged up eight men and they sent eight men and $8,000 in total. I think Hudson Taylor took, was it? How nine hundred and sixty or eight hundred and sixty men to China, something like that. And brothers, brother Stallman, that is that is a great anecdote from Hudson Taylor, and and it exposes uh, some some terribly wrong thinking that that we've that that has infiltrated. I'm afraid um, our our American mentality, even independent Baptist mentality about missions. And that is that money is the answer to everything. And it simply is not the answer to the need of the great commission. It is not because preaching the gospel is free of cost. (laughs) Anyone can preach the gospel for free. Money will never satisfy the need for missions. It is in the men and women who carry the message and we're not producing them. Yeah. And so, Start it in the home, change our lifestyle in our home, and then change our lifestyle at church. If our if our idea of a teen outing at our church is to take our kids shopping to the mall and finish at Starbucks with a $6 cup of coffee and to sit around, I, I, I hate to even say it, I can't already tell the difference between, in some churches, between the boys and the girls. They look the same, they talk the same, they eat <laughs> the same. And brother, I'm talking about independent fundamental Baptists. Where are the youth pastors and pastors who say, here's our youth activity Saturday. We're going to go to the inner city and we're going to gather a group of people on the street corner. We'll proclaim the gospel to them. Hey, bring your guitars, bring, bring whatever you can put up a box and preach the gospel. I'm telling you, young men are starving to go see the gospel work. They love the Lord. They want to see it work, and we're not feeding them the challenges that they need. And then we complain when they go to Francis Chan, or they go to John Piper, or they go to these other guys. Look, I've been in North Africa in places where there are no 
people, no Christians. And I met one of John Piper's guys there. He's in the middle of nowhere in a North African closed country, restricted as can be. John Piper's got a guy there. I was in another island off of Africa, 100% Muslim, and Francis Chan's got a guy there. So my boys as teenagers, honestly, were like, Dad, we're going to go work with Francis Chan. I said, (laughs) we're independent Baptists. They said, but you guys aren't doing anything. Wow. And they want to see the two-thirds of the world that are waiting. They want to see them here. And we got to engage our youth in a greater way and stop entertaining them. Brother, that's uh, you, you're you're thinking critically about this. You, you've you've put your finger on some things that uh, that that are some really really fundamental things uh, that if we could if we could change our thinking, if we could change our behavior, uh, we might we might really put a dent in this great commission. And uh, that leads us to a couple of some some tools, some resources that you've developed. So in the second part of this interview, I want to I want to pick your brain about Beyond Borders Mission Training Camp and your newest endeavor to inform young people about the need of the gospel around the world, uh, which you call impact geography. So uh, in part two, let's, uh, let's tackle that. The conversation today forms the backdrop for the educational resources that Brother Stallman and his team have developed to further the Great Commission. In the next program, he tells us about the missions training camp Beyond Borders and the Missional Geography Homeschool course, Impact Geography, designed to make Christian high schoolers aware of the world that Christ has sent us forth to reach. I hope you'll tune in next time as we address these subjects. You can subscribe to this program on a variety of different podcasting apps, and if it's been a blessing to you, feel free to invite others to tune in or rate and review the program wherever you may be listening. I always welcome your feedback. You can contact me, Brother Lee, by email at greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. Until next time, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond.